Jacques Derrida. Derrida, um, you probably, how many people have heard of Derrida? May not know anything about him or heard of yet. He's probably the most controversial philosopher of recent years and also hugely influential, but for many strange reasons, which we'll talk about. Um, if you've heard the term deconstruction, this is Derrida. Uh, generally, the term, in fact, invariably, the term is misused, and we'll talk about that, but this, that idea comes from Derrida. He's been protested. He's been uh, arrested. He's had uh, professor, professional and professorial groups strike against him to try and keep him from teaching or being given appointments and, and whatnot. So he's, he's been controversial, uh, and we'll talk about why that is. He was born in 1930 in Algeria. He's a Sephardic Jew, and this is very important, um, because being a Sephardic Jew in Algeria is sort of like being a minority of a minority. Because while the main population is, of course, Muslim, the uh, Algeria occupied for many, many years by the French. Um, before Derrida was born, the French thought it would be a great idea to give French citizenship to all the Sephardic Jews in Algeria. So they became sort of French. And this sort of made, but not really French, because they're Jewish and nobody likes the Jews, right? So it was this weird position that they were placed in, where they were sort of cooperating with the occupying powers, which made them none too popular with people like the Muslim Brotherhood, who had no use for Jews anyway. Um, but really, the French administration didn't trust them that much because A, they're from Algeria, and B, they're Jews. And so it really put them in the, as a community in this very awkward situation. Um, and anyway, for Derrida, this was influential on his thinking. He never claimed this, but it's perfectly clear if you read, read a lot of his writing. By the way, he wrote over 50 books. So he wrote a lot, and none of it is readable. And so it, it's, it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's even more because it's so un, incomprehensible at every moment. Um, but... When he was in school, once he was thrown out of school because the school had over its enrollment of Jews. It was only allowed a certain percentage of Jews, and he got kicked out. A second time he was thrown out of school because the um, Pathan government, the Vichy government, put in all kinds of anti-Jewish laws, and which got him kicked out of school. Uh, another time while he was in school, the French government enacted laws against the Berber, Berber language. And so you couldn't use all these phrases that had cropped into Algerian French because they don't have French words for all kinds of things that are in the Algerian world. And so it had been corrupted, the French authorities would say. So numerous times throughout his life and education, he ran into these experiences where his language, his background, his location, his position were constantly being questioned or thrown into doubt or marginalized. And, and when you read his writing, he spends a lot of time being concerned with these kinds of issues. So he gets into uh, the, the French School for Philosophers, the school that was attended by everybody, every French philosopher ever in history, even those that existed prior to the existence of the school went to that school. Um, it's it just, you know, uh, Sartre, de Beauvoir, uh, Levinas, Merleau-Ponty, Foucault, uh, Ricoeur, the, the whole list. Um, but it took him twice to get in, um, and it's not clear why. But part of the reason seems to be they didn't want an Algerian Jew in the school. Um, and so it took him two years of failing, and then the third attempt he was finally able to get into the school. 
Also, the Algerian school system really didn't give him the, the background because theoretically he was in a school system just as good as anyone you would have in France, but in fact, really, they weren't paying that much attention to him. Sort of the separate but equal theory that never worked out that well in the United States. Didn't work out that well in many of the colonial institutions either. Um, so Derrida gets in, and, and he's in school with Althusser, uh, Foucault, Levinas, and several other key figures. They're a generation and a half, or two generations, past Sartre and de Beauvoir. However, that excitement, that energy, that focus on French philosophy is still there. And, and Derrida dives in. Surprisingly, he studies Heidegger and Husserl and Hegel. He's only influenced by philosophers whose name begin with an H. Uh, but, but Heidegger, Husserl, and Hegel were, were the major impacts on his thinking. Husserl's phenomenology was the subject of his dissertation on the origins of geometry, and he talks about that at length. And then Heidegger's reading of Husserl's uh, phenomenology was hugely influential on him. But really what he liked to do is argue that Hegel was really a phenomenologist, which makes no sense if you've read these people. But this was his central argument. Um, and, he, and he entranced a lot of people with that. So he comes out, and this is a sign of, I'll explain this quickly as I can. A movement has taken off before he graduates or really begins working seriously. And this is called structuralism. And, and the classic example of structuralism is a guy called Ferdinand de Saussure. And he argues, he tries to scientize the social sciences. And, and all the social sciences pick this up very quickly. In fact, we call them social sciences because of this idea. The sciences have come into the ascendancy. Bertrand Russell, if you recall in the lecture on him, he, he argued that the only thing philosophy had less to do was help and explain science because all of the intellectual rigor and all the real discoveries were going on in the sciences. So if you're in history or cultural studies or anthropology, you want to capture some of the magic of science. How do you do that? A, you rename yourself social science, which is sort of, you know, <laughs> that, but that's really where the name comes from. Two, you try and scientize your research. But what can you really study? Saussure is central in this, so, so is uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss, um, in, in coming up with the argument that you can study the language. Uh, and that language is made up of, I mentioned this before, signs which point to signifies. So if you have the word, as I mentioned before, tree, tree stands for the thing out there in the world. The spoken word tree means the thing in the world tree. And because we can study the language, we can grab onto the language that a tribe speaks or the uh, uh, artistic language of a culture, then we can analyze it scientifically. Second part of this is long and parole. And long is a language. This is, it's, it's like French is a language or English is a language. And parole is any given speech in that language. So you can make a sentence up in English, and that's part of the language. And the language defines what you can say in any given sentence. And so what you do is you look at every instance of speech. You correlate that with the thing in the world that it signifies, 
And this allows you to construct a science that allows you to understand language and therefore cultures and history and everything else in the world scientifically. Ha, great. This is the structuralist attempt. It did not work out well, of course, but this is, this is the attempt. Now, the funny thing about this, although, although Claude Levi-Strauss and Ferdinand Associates did some good work, but it sort of, it sort of got uh, exaggerated and, and went wrong in a number of ways. Um, Louis Althusser being the prime example for going wrong. Um, but what happened in the United States, and this is crucial, because, because Derrida's reception here is different from in Europe, and I'll try and, on the continent and t- untie that. The first conference in the United States on structuralism had Derrida as a speaker. This is like having your first conference in your country on capitalism feature Karl Marx. <laughs> right? It's, it's too late then. So we never got structuralism. What we got was Derrida's critique of structuralism and some other structuralist guys all in the same time. This was confusing. The other thing that happened is Derrida and many of the other French philosophers did not come into the United States via philosophy departments. They came in via like Yale French studies and some English departments because American philosophers, heavily influenced by the British and people like Bertrand Russell and Ludwig Wittgenstein and A.J. Quine and uh, Ayer, were called analytic philosophers. They really wanted to work on logic and truth and science and all that good stuff. And they didn't understand what the humanist impulses of Sartre were all about, and they really didn't understand why structuralism thought they were doing science. So they were at loggerheads. And so they had no use for that. And so here comes Derrida into the middle of this. And he makes several arguments, but, but important to know that as he's making these arguments, he's arguing against something we don't have <laughs> in departments where he's not supposed to be. And so he sort of pisses off all kinds of people all everywhere. So like in Europe, people are mad because he's not he's arguing against the structuralists. And he knew most of them personally, so it was very sort of, you know, touchy. In the Americas, like they don't know what the hell he's talking about, but they know it's wrong. Uh, and, and so and at first he has he he, gave, he would give lecture tours in the United States, even even when I was in graduate school he did this still. Um, where he would speak only French, and his French is incomprehensible anyway. Um, to crowds that spoke no French and they would be packed. <laughs> and he found this endlessly amusing, right? Because it was like, what the hell are they doing? They don't understand what I'm saying even if they did understand the language, right? Um, but he points out, he says, look, this is wrong. This is what he called logocentrism, uh, or occasionally foul logocentrism. Um, this is the notion of Western metaphysical thought. And what Derrida wanted to do was overthrow the entire way the West conceptualizes the world. He listed that as his official project, which is a good project. Um, That's why he wrote 50 bucks, right? Because that's a lot of work. Uh, But he says, look, when you say that there is a speech, there's a word that the sign corresponds to, that points to something in the world, ah, you're saying there's something out there, a unity, an object, that makes what I'm saying sensible and more importantly true or at least potentially true. It it organizes everything. He says, and that's the lie of it. This is not how language works. He said, amongst other things, that signs simply point to other signs. 
word points to a different written word, points to a different written word, endlessly. He called this the endless play of signification. You never get out of that chain. It doesn't refer to the world, it refers to other signs. And he said the trick that Saussure tries to play is he says, look, speech is the real thing. Writing is always a supplement to speech because speech is personal and physical and interactive. So it's the real thing. It's the same argument that Socrates makes in the Phaedrus, which Derrida writes at length about. That, no, you don't want to write things down because speech is the real thing. Also, if you've learned anything about this, they almost always say, oh, well, we learned to speak, right? And at some point, we learned to write. Derrida says, one, there's no evidence for this. In fact, they probably are the same. They work at the same time. They're aspects of the same thing. Neither is first. Writing does not refer to speech. Speech does not refer to writing. They're inextricably linked. You can't untangle them. They're always both happening at the same time. There is no moment of pure speech. There is no moment of pure writing. And neither of those moments, if they existed, would, it, would actually refer to anything in the world in any case. And so you can't get out of the language. Therefore, it's not grounded in anything. It's not scientific. Because there are no grounds that you can appeal to. He says, Western metaphysical thought consistently wants to appeal to a unified origin for everything. And that unified origin, even if we don't know it, is the truth. We've talked a lot about this, but, but this is, this is it, it keeps cropping up because it's like, oh, it's going to be God. Oh, it's going to be uh, science. It's going to be experimentation. It's going to be logic. It's going to be mathematics. It's going to be uh, being. For Heidegger, it was being. If we could just get the nature of being down, then we would know everything. Even if you couldn't do it, which Heidegger sometimes suspected, if you could, you would know everything. Derrida says, no, you never, you never do. You never pin things down. It's not going to happen. You have to give it up. You have to give up the search for truth. Get rid of that. Um, but in fact, what he argues even, that's, that's logocentrism. The notion that, particularly with language, there's this unifying truth behind it. That if you read the text carefully, you'll know what it means. And it means that thing. Notice it's not that you get meaning out of the text. He was perfectly happy with that. There's a notion that there was meaning in the text that is there. It just is. And that what you're doing is reading the text to find the meaning. He says, no, you read the text and create the meaning. And so everybody who reads a text creates a different meaning because everybody's different. And it's an interactive process. So there is no truth of the text. There's only a reading of the text, and your reading of the text, and my reading of the text, and everybody else's reading of it. And there's nothing you can appeal to, really, to stop that process. But what, what if Western metaphysics tells us is, no, 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 there is a truth there. You just read for it, you read carefully. I, I'm, I'm up here, therefore my reading is right. And if you read differently, then your reading is wrong. And you keep reading until you get my reading, and then you're right because I'm up here and you're out there, right? This is the system. We know how this works. <laughs> and Derrida says, no, you can't do that. It's not there. And he goes at length. The one reason he writes so much is he just picks a subject and shows how wrong this is. One of the places he's been very influential in this is in law. Because there is no contract Derrida cannot break. Literally. And so he's had this 
big and, and often viewed as negative impact on the law because he could just dismantle language. He can say whatever it says, he can make it say something else. No problem. And, and this is disturbing to a legal system based on written documents. The documents are the truth, you see. Whatever they say, that's what they mean. Of course, we know that doesn't work at all. And that there's always these debates. But the notion is if we just got it right, if we just had the truth of the document, then we would know. If you follow the Supreme Court at all, you'll, you'll, this argument is up all the time. Well, what does the Constitution really mean? Derrida would say, well, it doesn't. That's the problem. And it's pretty clear the Founding Fathers didn't think so either. That's why they have the judges who vote on what it means. If you believe in the truth of a text, you don't let judges vote. That would be, that would be counterindicated. And so Derrida's like, no, it's always constructed. It's always a reading act. Oh, people hated this argument. People do not like this argument whatsoever. And we'll talk about why that is. So, but he says the problem is you still have Western metaphysics. And this is where the term deconstruction comes from. And, and just so you can wince every time it's used incorrectly as I do for the rest of your lives, let's take a moment to understand deconstruction. So he says what you have to do as a careful reader, as a philosopher, as a thinker, is take whatever it is apart not destroy it. Usually deconstruction is meant to say destroy or, or rip apart or dismantle. But it's the term he uses is from a French medieval term uh, that meant to take apart a siege engine because they were too heavy to carry around in one piece. But you were always going to reassemble them later. So it's to take apart with the notion of putting back together later. It's not to dismantle so that it can't be reassembled. In fact, he argued you can't help but reassemble it. We can't not let the truth back in because it's Western metaphysical thought and we can't escape it. He says the best you can do is create some space where you kind of think and doubt for a while, but eventually it all collapses back together. So you deconstruct and it reconstructs. Deconstruction, reconstruction, ongoing process. It is not destroying he says, you can't, we can't do that. We're not capable of it. He says, we might think we can, but we can't. The most we can do is create doubt and wonder and suspicion. And any number of examples of this, one of my favorite, again, coming from Socrates, uh, is people know uh, Socrates had to drink the hemlock. Uh, didn't have to. He basically committed suicide. He volunteered to drink the hemlock um, to kill himself. In the Greek text, that's called pharmakon. And Derrida wrote a, a part of a book called Plato's Pharmacy. And it's where we get the term for pharmaceuticals. Well, is hemlock a medicine or a poison? The answer is yes. <laughs> but you see what happens to your reading of a text when one word can mean to poison and to cure. Everybody wants to read the, the death of so the defense of Socrates as, oh, he poisons himself in the end. Derrida says it's perfectly valid to read that as he cures himself in the end. That he takes a medicine and is cured. He says we don't like to read it that way because we don't think of death as a cure. But Derrida argues all kinds of sides of this, but he says, look, basically pharmacon is one word that means pharmacy. It means a drug that cures and a drug that kills you. And it's the same drug. 
And it's the same word and it's the same idea. But we always want to narrow that truth because then we can know. And we'll, we'll come back to that. So deconstruction, to take apart with the thought of, in fact, the necessity of reassembling at a later date. So, so he's, he's trying to work against this, the display of signification again, the scientific, scientification of anything, including the sciences, which he didn't believe in very much, um, the deconstructing. As part of that process, he started working on what you might call modes of writing that themselves enacted this resistance. Which is to say, I want to write philosophy, but I want to write philosophy from which you can't possibly get any truth. Or at least I'm going to throw up every barrier I can to prevent you from getting any semblance of truth from my writing. And still be doing philosophy. It turns out that's a remarkably frustrating thing to read. <laughs> Which demonstrates how much we really want the truth. Stop beating around the bush. Just tell me the truth. And Derek keeps saying, no, I can't do that. In fact, I can't help but do that. So I'm going to fight against it as long as I possibly can. The most readable, and actually it is fun to read to a certain extent, book, is called The Postcard. Um, and and it, it illustrates a whole number of aspects of this. If anybody wants to see this book, it's, it's really wonderful. And he says, imagine, if you will, that you're in the attic of a house and you discover a bag of half-burnt postcards. You don't have all the addresses or all the dates. You don't know necessarily who's going to and what's from. You don't know if there's two people writing back and forth or a group of different people writing back and forth. And you try to assemble them in some order. That's my book. And that is his book. It's a series of half-written partial sections of postcards that you don't know who, there seems to be a love story going on, or several, but you never really know. It's a series of burnt-up postcards, um, which is a little frustrating to read, but also sort of entrancing, because it's a little puzzle that you try to assemble. And then as soon as you think you might be assembling it, he does something that makes you think, oh, that puzzle's all wrong. Yes? Was, it sounds like nothing is nothing flows in his writings. Oh, it most certainly does not. Uh, and did his personal life have order? Or oh, he's a chaos? very orderly person. When he wrote 50 books, which is to say he's a very dedicated writer, the quality of them you can argue about, but he certainly wrote a lot. Married for years and years and years, 30, 40 years, um, and two sons, everything seemed to be great on that front. Lots of awards, you know. No, he was very sort of successful in that sense. But he, he, he really tried to resist this pinning of things down. But if you read the postcard, he, he makes, not only does he challenge the whole notion of, oh, I'm the author, I'm supposed to tell you something. Um, he obscures that as much as possible. He also does other things, like he claims to have gone into the Bodleian Library and cut a page out of this ancient text, which he may have. I've never been able to confirm whether he did or did not, but he claims that he did this. And the text of that, the picture of that text is on the cover of the book. And so if he did really go and rip this book out of the, like one of two in existence, right? But then it raises a couple of questions. One, okay, that's a criminal, right? Two, if you 
didn't. He's just lying. And this is the other problem with Derrida. He's happy to lie to you. <laughs> he has absolutely no compunction about that at all. Why should he feel that he has to tell the truth? Whatever that is. Whatever that is. That's exactly right. See, once you let go of that, it's very liberating. He's like, well, he's he's perfectly happy to mislead at any given moment. So you never know when what he's writing is what he means, or if he's just purposely misleading to you, or if he's lying to you. Back to the Plato's pharmacy, and back to his reception by philosophy departments in the United States. What he does, um, so quick note, again, the American philosophical schools went from the British ones, but we never had the British philosophical education background. So most philosophers, professional philosophers in the United States, do not speak Greek or Latin, which is rare in England, particularly at that time when Derrida was coming out. A little more common now, but still relatively rare. Very uncommon for American uh, philosophers to actually be fluent enough in Greek and Latin to go back and read the original texts in the original languages. So one of the things Derrida likes to do is propose completely preposterous translations of Greek classics. <laughs> but nobody knows. That's the key. And it drives the American philosophical establishment absolutely insane. Because they want to say that can't possibly be, but they don't know the Greek or Latin, so what the hell are they going to do? <laughs> right? So he can say anything he wants, and if you can't check, well, you don't know. But they know that he might be lying at any moment, because he lies all the time. (laughs) But you never know when unless you actually check. And so all this drove them crazy, because they want to say that's wrong. You are wrong. That's not in there. But to do that would actually take the work of knowing the language and going back and checking. And generally speaking, he was right. And he did check, and he was a much better scholar than most of the Americans who kept trying to fight with him. And this drove them absolutely nuts. Um, and so, again, he, and he, was, so he was purposely antagonizing them, one. Two, they had built the reputation of the American philosophical departments on uh, achievements primarily in logic and phenomenology and behaviorism of all godforsaken things. Um, with this very firm grip on truth, very closely allied with the sciences. Because we didn't have the classical tradition that England had, nor the sort of French humanist tradition that the French had. And so our philosophy departments were floating around with identity, and they gripped onto logic and truth. That's going to be our thing. And so when Derrida comes along and says, forget all that stuff. Well, they were happy about this. And so literally, almost not taught in philosophy departments in the United States during, during at least the first 30 years of his work, working life. He's picked up by English departments uh, in a new field called critical studies, which is based on a group that he advanced very early in his group called the Telquel Group. But his argument was, look, literature and philosophy are not that far separated. They should get together and work. Now, this really pissed the philosophers off, because now you got all these people who do literature writing philosophy texts and books and going to philosophy conferences and screwing everything up, <laughs> applying for their grants, for instance, which really upsets them. <laughs> um, so this, this, this 
sort of create all this crazy patchwork stuff, and nobody knows how to pin you down. That's another thing that's important with Derrida. He had a tendency to publish three books at once, which he called a tripartite biblio blitz, <laughs> which meant that you could never figure out what order his texts were written in, because they would come out three books on one day. And you could never catch up with them. Right? And no scholar could have a comprehensive overview of his work, because by the time you finished one, well, he has two more to read, and you get through the second one, and by God, here's another three of his books. And so he tried to keep even people who were trying to figure out what he was doing very much at bay, to the point where for a long time he would allow no photographs of himself to be taken. Because he said, that's just another way of trying to contain him. And then at one point he said, well, I'll forget that. And people said, well, why? And he said, because the image of my non-image is becoming my image. <laughs> and so I think it's important to have an image which will upset my non-image. And then you'll have the vacancy of my image against my image, and that'll create tensions and problems. So he was just this tormentor. Yes, tormentor of other people. He, he by the way, and this is another point, he thought all of this was great fun. This is another thing that upset people. He was enjoying it. If you read his books, they are, if nothing else, hilarious, particularly in French, because he has all these like delayed sexual gratification jokes, premature ejaculation jokes, picking up people jokes, all worked into like a Hegel critique. I don't know how he does it, but he does it, and he does it like every other paragraph. He's a genius. He has this whole book on Karl Marx called Specters of Marx, because Marx in the Communist Manifesto starts off, there's a specter haunting Europe that is the specter of the rise of the working class. So his book on Marx is called Specters of Marx, in which there's a specter haunting Europe, and it's Marx. <laughs> and it's written as a sort of long, shaggy dog ghost story. But it's a critique of contemporary Marxism as shaggy dog ghost story, in like impenetrable phenomenological language. Yeah, and so you, again, you never know when he's just messing around or when he's actually telling the truth. Did he really rip a page out of a like 13th century manuscript from the Bodleian Library in Oxford? He claims to have, but I don't know. Um, he also wrote a, a big book of art um, re reviews. Like he went to a library and they have the or a library museum and they have little signs underneath all the pictures. He did one of those for blind people, so that if you went to this for all the pictures for blind people, but he wasn't going to talk about the pictures because they couldn't see him and it would be pointless. So he calls it the Museum for the Blind. Yeah. So he'd love to do this kind of thing. So Derrida was having fun. And you have to remember this when you read him because we want our philosophers to be serious. Think Wittgenstein. Oh, hopelessly serious guy. I mean, you just want to get Wittgenstein drunk all the time because he was just really wound tight. But see, Derrida, not that way. He was having a great time. Another example of this is he wrote um, The University in the Eyes of Its Pupils. Uh, another always, always, always playing with languages. But he was invited as the like president's lecturer at Cornell University. And there was a big controversy about this because the Cornell University faculty members did not like him. So a group of them got him invited, another group didn't want him to be there anyway. So he gives the lecture. So there you are, you're at the president's there, the you know, the people, very prestigious American university. And he talks about there's a bridge at Cornell that students have a tendency to throw themselves off of. So much so that they put out nets so that when they jump, they don't die. Right? 
And so this is the subject he chooses for his lecture. Like, why would you put up nets? Right? This is, and so, of course, no one is happy except for him because he thinks this is hilarious. That he's here lecturing to them on their students throwing themselves off of bridges, right? And, I just, and he just thought this was the greatest thing. It's a funny essay called The University in the Eyes of Its Pupils. Uh, yeah. And, but he just, he does this all the time. And, and you couldn't, you just couldn't pin the guy down because he didn't want to be pinned down. But he did think, one, that it should be fun. He said, you know, we should, he called it the play, the endless play of signification. In fact, there's a great essay, I can't remember who wrote it, where they just took all the language from Heidegger, which is in German, so it sounds more serious anyway, but all of his, you know, Alf Habelmeer, all, all these very serious German words, you know, work and focus and pragmatism, and, and he translated them into play and freedom and, and, and dissonance and, and, you know, and just joie de vivre, right? It's, it's over, everything, all his terms are overflowing with happiness and joy and sort of the uh, ineffability of life that overruns any attempt at categorization or unification. That's what he was really against. He thought there were better things to, that we could go for. Um, and so this, again, again, tracks back to his upbringing, right? And when I was in, I was in graduate school, I worked with, uh, it was when apartheid, when the wall came down in South Africa. And so it was illegal to teach Derrida in South Africa, pre-apartheid. Because he because of his political activities, but because you know that at least they were smart enough to realize that he you know he was going to be opposed to a lot of this racist stuff, um, and so a group of South African professors, black professors, came to Indiana University, and, and one of them got teamed up with me, and I was supposed to like you know teach him Derrida, teach him post-structuralism. I'm like okay, so we went to the coffee shop and we would chat. So this goes on for like three weeks, where I'm talking to the uh, uh, I don't know where this guy was from. But, you know, he didn't have my background. Let's just put it that way. He's from out in the middle of no place in, in South Africa. No real university education. But they're trying to accelerate him because, you know, the population is 80% black and almost none of them have ever been to college. And now they want to go. So they want some black professors, right? Great. So we're going back and forth. He's asking me questions. We're making no headway. And he's trying to read Derrida, and I'm like, yeah, that's confusing and awkward, and, and, and you know, we'll go on. And finally, I just say, okay, look, here's the deal. And, this is, and I, later I found a passage where Derrida puts this nearly as explicitly. I said, how do you impose apartheid in South Africa? I mean, impose apartheid in South Africa. You impose it by saying, you're black, you're Indian, you're white. What Derrida wants to do is preclude the possibility of saying, you're black, you're brown, you're Indian, you're white. You can't say that. It's an impossible distinction to make. He wants to fight against any ability to make those distinctions because they don't exist. That's basically his argument. In the real world, they don't exist. We have this problem in the United States. We call them African Americans. What the hell does that mean? Right? How, how black do you have to be to be black? How white do you have to be to be white? There are almost no people in the United States of pure African origin unless they came over, you know, last weekend. That's why by Africans and America, African Americans are also very light-skinned compared to most Africans from Africa. Right? But even in Africa, the racial tone of skin varies dramatically. So how do we know someone's African American? Well, we know, right? That, and that knowing, that very deep metaphysical knowledge that is grounded on a falsehood 
And yet we feel it very strongly and it allows us to say things like, you're black and you're not. That's the kind of thing he was very against. It's the kind of thing that allowed people to tell him that you're a Jew, you can't go to this school. Or you're a French, therefore we're going to blow you up. Or you speak French and go to our universities, but really you're Algerian, so we hate you anyway. Right? That capacity to categorize and make uniform categories out of diverse and discursive nature, this is the project that he most strongly wanted to oppose. So that was, that was the clearest headway I made in that argument, is to say this is part of the project, not all of it, but a big part of it. If I can't say you're black, I can't then force you to do anything. It's only if I can make a category and make you conform to it. Remember back to the Russell lecture. This is how his foundations of mathematics fell apart. It's because he could never control the classes. And when the proof comes for the incompleteness of mathematics, the proof is there is no class which can define all of the things within it. That class doesn't exist. It's too discursive. And so even in the most rational, logical world of mathematical logic, it doesn't work. And yet we use it. And yet we fall for it. And this is what Derrida said, we inevitably will. Another section, he refers to the truth as a bad check. We write it even though the money's not in the bank, hoping that by the time someone gets around to cashing it, the money will be in the bank. But they never cash it until they've written another bad check. And so what happens is all these bad checks just float around. And as long as no one tries to get all the truth at once, then it's, we don't realize that there's virtually no money backing it up. Right, sort of the big collapse of our housing market. Right, um, as long as everyone believes, everyone believes. But as soon as you check, it turns out not to be so good. So this this has led to a whole bunch of problems in his reception. On one hand, conservative, what could come to be called academic conservatives and academic philosophers, have resisted Derrida because they say he undermines the truth. This is sort of not really all that accurate. What he says is that we should fight against the truth, but it's not going to work. The best we can do is temporarily suspend it. What he argues is that, look, what we need to do is constantly reread the classics. Rousseau, Socrates, Hegel, Husserl. If you look at his works, they're all major philosophical literary figures from history. He was not trying to what they called destroy the canon, get rid of all the major thinkers, prove that they're all wrong. This wasn't his project. He spent years studying all of them and writing about them. What he did say is what we think we know about them might be wrong. See, this, this they hated them. And then they would say, well, tell us what they do mean. He'd say, no, all I'm saying is what we think we know might be wrong. That's all I'm going to claim. And what... Most they want to do is say, no, we know what Socrates means. Well, why do we know what Socrates means? Did you read it in the Greek original? Because I read it in the Greek original, at least I claim to have, and this is what I think it means. <laughs> and you don't like what I'm telling you I might mean, although I could be lying, um, but you don't have any means of disproving me. And so what you have is an, an environment in which a lot, of, a lot of mainline thinkers, academics, don't want to go back and reread the classics because it's too time-consuming. It takes too much work. 
Um, in fact, when I, was, when I was working on Derrida in my dissertation, he put out the book Spectres of Marx, but it hadn't been translated into English yet. It was in French. And so I set about translating it in English for my own uses in my dissertation. Um, and one of the professors on my committee said, well, why are you doing that? And I said, well, because I need to use it. And he said, well, but it's a waste of time. It'll be out in English before too long. You have better things to do. I'm like, huh, that's an interesting argument. See, the notion that this, you have better things to do than go back and revisit this. So conservatives tend to argue, look, we know what the texts mean. Don't mess up their meaning. We've got them fixed. So we don't need to read them anymore. Stop reading them. Go on and do the more important things. <clears throat> liberals, on the other hand, have been identified as liberals. Say, oh, this is great. It gets rid of truth. It opens up. It overthrows it all. We don't have to worry about all that stuff anymore. See, they don't want to read it either. <laughs> and, and so these big battles went on and, and, and at the same time you had people saying no, no, no we've got to keep the canon because we know what it means and the other people saying we don't have to read anything Any, everything's equally valuable read whatever you want and, and it's a big argument one of our professors who taught Indian literature uh, in, of the Indian subcontinent and the student said, oh, well, this is great. We're going to get Indian literature. She said, and I said, yeah, I think it's great. It should be taught. But what Indian languages should we learn? And people said, oh, no, no, we don't want to learn Indian languages. That would take too much time. I'm like, well, if their literature is worth studying, shouldn't we at least bother to go out and learn Sanskrit or one of the other hundreds of languages that there are hanging out in India? No, we don't want to do that. Because, again, it takes too much time. And so it was two groups who are equally in agreement that they don't want to read texts. And so they both, one group championed Derrida incorrectly, the other group opposed him incorrectly. So we have this very weird take on Derrida because it's really a, a, a misreading of him. Like I said, look at what he wrote about all classics. It's like an encyclopedia of classics, particularly if, if from the French university standpoint. Um, no, the American writers don't want to read that stuff. Conversely, he never says we're going to get rid of truth. He just says we want to try and stall it off for just a little bit so that we have some notion of, of what to think about. Other example from this, another book called The Truth in Painting. Anytime he uses truth in the title, you know you're in trouble. Uh, <laughs> the, the Truth in Painting. And there's a famous pair of boots painted by um, Van Gogh. And he gives all these great analysis, analyses of, of these boots. And he says, you know, one of the funny things is, everyone talks about this pair of boots. It's actually called the pair of boots by Van Gogh. Um, and he says, it's not clear they're a pair at all. It's not clear that this is a, a left and right boot. And when you look at the painting, as soon as he says that, you look at the painting and you go, hey, he's right. <laughs> God damn it, he's not absolutely accurate. You look at those boots and pretty soon you can't tell if there's two rights, two lefts, or just what the heck's going on. And then the more you think about it, you realize, oh, this notion of left and right, heavily articulated shoes, where does that come from? A, 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 an industrialized, mechanized culture which Van Gogh, being extraordinarily poor, and where he lived, this was not the norm yet. You know, this is a time when people might have one fork and one plate. 
right? And we think, oh, well, of course, they're left and right. That's how shoes come. Not that clear that that's how shoes come. It's also not clear that Van Gogh could have afforded left and right boots, even if, even if they did exist that way where he was. And so Derrida raises all this, and he says, well, why don't we see this when we look at the painting? Right? Where is the truth in painting? He also talks about what he calls the pereragon. Uh, he was great for either making up words or digging up words that you've never heard before. You know, like pereragon. Well, it turns out pereragon has to do with the edge of a painting. So one of the questions he asks is, where does a painting start and where does it end? Is the frame part of the painting? Right? I mean, that's because it certainly influences how we see the painting. But is it part of the painting? Okay, if it's not part of the painting, then where is the painting? Is it the thing just inside of the frame? But what if we just keep shrinking the frame down? Right? Well, then that's certainly not the painting. So the painting must be where the frame starts. But what about all the paintings that weren't framed? Let's take those frames off. Why don't we take the frames off of paintings? Because <laughs> then they would just be sort of hanging there. And he points out, then the frame would be the museum. And that's just baffling. <laughs> we don't want the frame of the painting to be the museum. So, so where is the truth? He says, so he ends up convincing you. Again, he, he's always very convincing until about a week later. And you're like, what? But he ends up pretty convincing you that, look, there, if we could find out where the hell the painting was, that would be a good start for figuring out what the truth of it was. But the more you think about where it is actually, where does it start, where does it end, what is the actual part of the painting, the, the more trouble you get in. Um, and this is what he's a master at, is just unraveling these things and leaving you out there going, huh. And what you realize after reading a lot of them is that we end up, a la deconstruction, is filling in the truth. He's not far from William James in this, that our minds fill in all the gray areas through habit, through assumption, through acculturation. Anytime we're faced with something like two boots, we go, that's a pair. We just know they're a pair. Until someone like him comes along and says, I don't know if that's a pair. He doesn't say they aren't a pair, because that would be a you know, declarative statement, which he's not going to make. Uh, but he says, I don't think that, that might not be a pair. And then you go, ooh, damn. And then I thought, and, and then the truth in painting, they have a reproduction of it. But he makes me so suspicious that I actually looked at another reproduction, because I thought he might have messed around with the one. But he didn't. It looked like it. But, but he would. That's the thing. He's not above that at all. And so he says, all of these assumptions, for instance, the assumptions that writers are telling us the truth, or at least trying. Right? We have this notion that you're supposed to believe what you write. That's where good writing comes from. Right? Write what you know. Write it true. There's like, nah, not so much. Right? But if we get rid of that assumption, he calls this the death of the author. Who says the author knows what the hell the author's doing? If the author does, why should we believe him or her? But even if the author does, that might not be what you receive. Oh, that's right. So, and that's all right. And, and haven't you ever read a book, maybe you know, when you're young and then you're a little older, you read the book again, you're like, oh my God, it's a totally different book. <laughs> Did the book change? Your experiences change how you receive the book. Well, what the hell? Did the author come back while you were growing up and change stuff around? <laughs> so the book is changing, and your experience of the book is changing, apparently without the author's intervention. I mean, Derrida was like, wow, what do we make of that? Books are 
changing all the time. So how do we know what the truth of the book is? Well, we don't. But notice what we think is, and this, I had this experience myself with Thomas Mann's uh, Dr. Faustus, a wonderful work. Once you figure out that it's an unreliable narrator, until then, it's like, this is a stupid <laughs> book. Uh, but once you figure that out, oh, great book. But it took me a while, like 10 years. Um, but the, your sense is like, ah, now I've got the real book, right? That book I read before, that was wrong. I misunderstood it. Now I have the truth. See, Derrida says that's how we feel all the time. We go from moment of, oh, now I'm right. I've been stupid my entire life up till now, but now I'm right. (laughs) See, we should be suspicious of that. We should go, well, now if I've been wrong till now, why? No, that's not how we feel, though. And that's the Western metaphysical press that's on us all the time. Now I'm right. Okay, I was wrong about that. Oh, now I'm right. Now, you know, we'll do that basically forever. And he, he, in opposition, he mentioned specifically, he says, if you read any Asian philosophy at all, the first thing they say, the last thing they say, the third thing they say is, you can't trust language, you can't trust speech. There's just a chapter and verse. They say, well, we shouldn't even write anything down. Well, we hate to repeat this. Okay, we'll tell you the story, but it's not going to make any sense anyway. The, at length, because they consistently distrust language in exactly the opposite of the way that we trust language. Ooh, if we just understood it, if we knew just what the book said, then we would be in business. <clears throat> and, and what happens, therefore, surprisingly enough, and by Derrida's argument, I think, in fact, is what we try to do is stop reading. Our goal is to not read anymore. Once I understand it, I don't have to read it anymore. And we can grasp it and put it away, and I'm done with it. Then I can move on to the next book. And I can grasp that, and I can read it, and I can put it away, and I'm done with it. And it, and it, it frees us from having to have you know, knowledge or contemplation, or wisdom of any kind, uh, because we, we, just, we can just finish with these things. And Derrida wants to say, no, no, you cannot finish. He called this dissemination. Things just flow on. There is no edge to the painting. The truth is not there. There is no truth in the text that you don't in part construct with it. Um, finally, and, and surprisingly, again, so, so hugely controversial, and one of the main accusations of him in the United States, at least, has been that, well, this defeats all politics, right? If you don't have a truth, then how do you have a political position? How do you, how do you, it, it, it disrupts. And so now liberals, pro- progressives tend to dislike him again. So he was in favor for a little while, and then he fell out. Now, nobody seems to like him. It's a sort of stock rising and falling. Um, but, at the same time, of his 50 books, probably 15 of them are directly political. Like Spectres of Marx is a book on Marxism and politics in continental Europe. Uh, he also formed groups like Telquel, but one I found most interesting is a book uh, group that he formed on the teaching of philosophy in high school called The Student's Right to Philosophy. And he said, look, how can we have people educate them, pretend to educate them, and not give them philosophy? Don't students have a right to philosophical thinking? Isn't, isn't it our duty? Aren't we obligated to allow them to read philosophy? A very specific educational program, which he aggressively tried to put into force. Um, he was also involved in any number of other very concrete, specific political things. 
the, the difference with him and what, what we tend to dislike about in the country generally is the notion of I want to be right. My political position is right, your political position is wrong. Derrida is like, yeah, I don't think we should say that. I think that's probably a bad way to begin because that's the same thing as saying I'm white and you're black. Therefore, I get to put you on a reservation or put you in an internment camp or it tends to lead to bad things, historically speaking. Heidegger, classic example of this. Um, what we, we don't need that. He says, in fact, we want to struggle against that. We want to struggle against the imposition of the truth, of knowing things all the time. We know too much. We have to stop knowing the truth. We have to give that up. We're not going to, but we need to struggle to ask ourselves the kinds of questions like, if I see two boots, are they necessarily a pair? Does this text have any truth in it at all? In Derrida's case, probably not. At least he's working against it as hard as he can. Uh, another famous example from this, uh, again, one of his earlier works, his most famous work, by the way, is called Of Grammatology. And that was his demonstration, I think pretty convincing, despite its strangeness. And I have a selection here extended from it. Uh, these don't make all that much sense in isolation. They don't make that much sense anyway. Uh, but it was just to give you a, a taste of the quality of his writing. Um, but in Of Grammatology, he shows pretty convincingly that writing and speech probably evolve at the exact same time. But this notion that we were spoke for millions of years or 100,000 years or whatever, and then at some point developed writing, Derrida doesn't believe that at all, and he makes a pretty damn good argument for it. So it's a very famous text for that. At the same time, of course, again, he puts out three books at once every once in a while. Um, he put out a text called Gla, which I have excised one, one from here, which is on Hegel. And where it says Gla 43a, that means page 43a. Because in the book itself, and he did this in more than one book, you have text here, and you have text here. And it's not clear what, if any, relationship the two sets of text have. So you don't even know what book you're reading when you're reading law. And a lot of the sections don't really make that much sense as far as being connected to each other. And so it's sort of more like a cut-out bunch of anecdotes run in two columns that may or may not have anything to do with each other. And so again, he's always working to disrupt our notion of, well, what is a book? What is thinking? What is, what is a painting? What are a pair of boots? How does any of this relate to each other? But always for the purpose, and this is where you can get back to some of the things that he was focused on and really was intent about. He wants us to think. And he says the problem is we react to anything like a book or a text or a painting by knowing it. We know what a painting is. Wrong. We know what a book is. Wrong. We know what boots are. No. We know what Socrates means. No, we don't. We shouldn't. And his, and his example from the postcard, the, the picture that he may or may not have cut out of the book in the Bodleian Library, is it's an amazing picture, actually, uh, is of, it's a medieval picture, I think 13th century, of Plato standing behind Socrates <coughs> while Socrates writes. In, in philosophical history, the notion is, well, not the notion, it's pretty well established that 
Plato did all the writing, and Socrates says you should never write. But it's not clear what happened with this medieval illuminator. Did he just get the names wrong? <laughs> right? But anyway, that's what it is. And, and, and he says, ah, oh, that's it, right? Socrates really did all the writing. He was like Plato's secretary. Right? And he, and he just and he just works with this. But if you start thinking that way, it sort of reconceptualizes the whole notion of these guys. But that's the idea. Think about them. Reflect. It may be that when they reconstruct, remember, deconstruction, when we put them all back together again, it may not be that different. But we will have explored it, thought about it, and understood it. If we just look at it and know, then we're almost certainly wrong. That's not us. That's our culture. That's Western metaphysics telling us what things are, how the world is, what to think. And, and if you read Derrida and look at his work, that's what he fought against, basically on every page with every argument. So, Jock Derrida, there you go.